This third lesson of the Bible study on Samuel is entitled, Saul, a king like all others. And you're going to see as we go through this lesson, as well as next lesson, when we talk about his fall, he is just like a king like all the others. And so we'll make various references to this title as we go throughout the story. We're looking at chapters 8 through 11. Last lesson was chapters 1 through 11, looking at the entire uh, story of Samuel, his miraculous birth, his upbringing, his his righteous step up, stepping up to leadership. Okay, he's a righteous judge. And so now we're going to look at chapter 8 and see how things begin to shift. So let's read just the first few verses here. Chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. All right, well, this is very sad, and it's very very much a deja vu experience because we've seen this before back in the opening chapters of the book with Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They, uh, Eli's sons, perverted justice, took bribes, slept with the women at the entrance of the temple or the tabernacle, treating them essentially like temple prostitutes. They're taking some of the choicest parts of the sacrifices that are reserved for God, taking that for themselves. So there's liturgical corruption, moral corruption. There's all these bad things that are happening. And you're hoping that with Samuel, that would all stop, right? But it's not stopped. His children are also corrupt. Now, one thing I want to clarify with this, because it always raises the question, like, how is it possible that Samuel, I mean, you get it with Eli. E- Eli is not necessarily an upstanding judge himself. There's all kinds of evidence in the text that he's guilty for a variety of things, certainly not for stopping his children, but he seems to be participating in the liturgical corruption as well. But how could that happen with Samuel? Samuel is such an amazing character. He's, I think, arguably the best judge of them all, going all the way back to the book of Judges up until this point. The last is the greatest. He's fantastic. And so why is it that his sons are not walking in his ways? Because that's what the scripture says. They're not walking in his ways. Uh, They're departing from uh, following the law and following the wisdom of God in their lives. Well, this is very interesting. It makes me think a lot about how the reality that many times our children do not walk in our ways or the ways that we would want them to walk in, the ways of God. This happens a lot. I teach a, a lot of scripture. I've been teaching at this point for over 15 years in ministry and education in various dioceses. And oftentimes when I teach adults, there are parents who come to me and say, I don't know what happened. I raised my children in the faith. I brought them to Catholic schools. We went to mass regularly. We even prayed their rosary and they don't practice the faith anymore. What did I do wrong? And I think what this teaches us here is sometimes parents don't do wrong. I mean, not not that they never do wrong, because obviously we can always uh, be better. I'm not saying that. But sometimes the fact that children leave the faith is not necessarily the fault of the parents. Ultimately, children have their own free will to choose. The fact that Samuel here is never punished, and the fact that Samuel doesn't have a single verse against him saying that he did something wrong with regards to his children indicates that this was just simply their choice. I got a very simple little quote for you on the bottom of your page here from Haydock, a classic little commentary, all kinds of great little jewels in that commentary. He says that Samuel was not to blame for his son's behavior, and hence he was not punished like Eli. I think this is a really interesting lesson. Sometimes we do everything that we can do for our kids, but they just simply fall victim to the culture and they give in to temptations and their own weaknesses. And all we're to do is to pray for them and to work with them to get them back, hopefully sooner rather than later. So I think this is a very interesting, I'm spending a little bit more time on this because I think it's it's very important to, of course, always try to steer your children, your family members, your friends towards 
uh, righteousness, right? Following God, obeying God, and living a, a good Christian life. I think that's obviously important. But when that doesn't happen, sometimes we're not to blame ourselves. We could always do better, but in, like in Samuel's case, he's not. He never did anything wrong. That's not indicated in any way. He's not punished in any way. It's just that his sins went awry. But that's not the case with Eli. He was bad, and he had to. He had to be punished for the iniquities, for lack of a better word, right? The injustices that his children were guilty of. So I just want to close this point up and just simply say that sometimes we can learn from Samuel's case and that our children just go astray and we're just simply to continue to pray for them, to love them, and to get them back however we can to the fold. All right. I just want to conclude that point. The fact though that his sons are perverting justice and they're they're wicked, taking bribes, They're not following Samuel's ways. That Again, I think that's another indication that they're departing from him. That's their choice. They're departing from his ways. This is going to be a problem for the rest of Israel because they don't want to relive the situation with Eli's family all over again. Things have been going great with Samuel, but they don't want to have to go on this merry-go-round over and over again. So they decide to come to Samuel in verse 4, if you want to follow me here, verse 4 and following. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramoth. And they said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to govern us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when he said, Give us a king to govern us. And so Samuel went and prayed to the Lord. And we'll stop there really quickly. Okay, so they want a king like all the other nations. If you're familiar with salvation history in general, this is a very very famous, very familiar, popular scene, a sequence in which we're transitioning between the era of the judges and the era of the monarchy. And so it's very, very important to understand how this takes place, but more than that, how it also applies to us. Remember, all scripture is very relevant to us. (laughs) It teaches us lessons that we need to learn even today. So what is going on with them is they want to be they want to have a king like all the other nations. They want to be like everybody else because they're tired of what's going on with the judgeship, the period of the judgeship. Now, this demand has various negative implications. First and foremost, it's very clear from the text. You can go back to Deuteronomy and Judges. I'm going to take you to some of these passages here. And right here in 1 Samuel, primarily they're, re- they're rejecting God as their king. It's not like they just want a different kind of leadership. They're flat out rejecting God's kingship over their lives. Okay? So, for example, if you go back to Judges chapter 8. Now, what I'm trying to prove here is that God is always meant to be their king. Going back to the Pentateuch, going back to the story of the Exodus, God was always meant to rule over them. And if they would be obedient to him and obey his laws and love God and love each other, love thy neighbor as thyself, all this stuff, then they would have peace, they'd have prosperity, they would be greatly blessed and fruit of the womb and the fruit of the vine, all of this stuff. So rejecting God now is going to be a problem. So if you go back to Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 23, you see this theme of of God's kingship. So this is the story of Gideon. You might remember the story of Gideon. If you listen to the Bible study, my Bible study, we talk about this in detail. It says, The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. End quote. So he does really well at this point. He correctly says, no, God is going to rule over you. He is your king. You must follow him. And at least verbally, he rejects the kingship. And that's the problem with Gideon, not to retell his whole story. The problem with Gideon is that he verbally and rejects the kingship, but in his deeds and his actions, he very much is acting as a king. And this is going to be Gideon's fall from grace. Uh, we can't get into that whole story. So nevertheless, the positive thing is he does state 
what the obvious answer is, God is our king and we're going to serve him. And that's supposed to be the uh, obedience that all the people are to give God from then to now. All right. And here, however, they're rejecting God's kingship. First uh, Samuel chapter eight, verse seven. We haven't read that yet. Let's uh, inch forward a little bit. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. All right, the same thing is kind of, I'll just fast forward just a second here. The chapter 10, verse 19, the same thing is, is said here. Uh, Samuel says to the people, this day you have rejected your God who saves you from all of your enemies. So this is what's happening. The rejection of God over their lives. That's the primary meaning of their request. Secondarily, however, it's very interesting, by wanting to be like all the other nations, they're rejecting their own identity and vocation to be called apart from all the other nations to be God's adoptive son. Okay? God is not only their king, God is their father, and Israel's vocation is a very unique, special one. And we know this by going back to Exodus. There's a couple of passages that you must have memorized from Exodus. Exodus 4.22, uh, God says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. This concept of being the firstborn son is a very important role. Before I explain that, actually, let me just go down to chapter 19, uh, verses 5 and 6. Another very important passage. They just arrive at Mount Sinai, and now God says in chapter 19, verse 5 of Exodus, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples. For on earth... For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are very two extremely important, very, very important verses, two of them, that tell us what Israel's vocation is. They're to be set apart from all nations, to be holy, to be a kingdom of priests, to be God's firstborn son of all nations. Meaning that if you go back to the old covenant in the ancient world there, the firstborn son was the priest uh, and the leader of the family to teach the younger children how to obey God, how to obey their parents and to live righteously. That's what Israel is supposed to do. Israel is not called by God despite all the other nations uh, and rejection of all the other nations. God calls Israel to bless all the other nations. So Israel's role is not to be like everybody else. Israel's role is to be special to be called apart, to be God's unique possession, to bless everybody. And so in trying to have a king like everybody else, they're, they're rejecting that special vocation. And that's a little of what this next quote here is saying from your Catholic study Bible. Demand for a model of government adopted by the Gentiles, monarchy, amounts to a rejection of Israel's special vocation to live as a people set apart under the direct rule of Yahweh as their king, theocracy. Okay, this is this is really, really crucial. All right, rejecting who they are as God's children to be like everybody else. And I got to tell you, if we're going to apply this to our lives today, to every single generation, every single person, we are tempted to do this as well, where we reject God's rule over our lives in order to be like everybody else. And if we're and, and in so doing, especially if you're a baptized Christian, if you want to reject God's rule over you and to, in order to be like everybody else, like all the other nations, you're going to begin to behave like all the other nations. You're going to be indistinguishable from all the other nations. This is going to happen in the rest of Israel's history. They will become indistinguishable from all the other nations, and it's true for us too. I'm, I'm sad to report, and you may or may not be aware of this, um, but many Christians of different flavors, uh, the Protestants, Catholics, whatever it is, sadly, their lifestyle style is no different than non-baptized unbelievers. You know, the secular people out there living in the world pursuing their goals and their dreams or whatever— 
you can't really tell them apart from Catholics or from Christians. Why? It's because they're trying to be like all the other people that are all around them. They're rejecting their own special vocation to be a light to the nations, to be salt of the earth, you see. So this is very, very applicable to us. It's not just a story of how Israel went bad and how Israel decides to reject God and to reject their vocation as God's child and God's son and a, a royal holy nation. That's our story too, if we're not careful. We could reject the blessings God gives to us, okay? All right, so there's more about that. Uh, wanting a king, specifically if you go down to actually uh, at the end of chapter 8, uh, we're going to get there in just a little bit, but just to fast forward really quickly to, to prove another point. In verse 19, it says, The people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, we will have a king over us that we may be like all the other nations, and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. So this little line here really helps us to understand. It's kind of like an inclusio going on, actually, like a little book in verse for chapter 8. The chapter begins and ends with them demanding to have a king like all the other nations. But this little line here, they say, the king may go out and fight our battles, tells us that their focus is more secular than spiritual. They want temporal security over their relationship with God. Okay? They don't really trust that God will protect and provide for them, which is really ironic and it's really sad and distressing because if you go back to Deuteronomy, when Moses tells them, if you just obey God and love him with your whole heart and mind your P's and Q's, right? behave, be good little boys and girls, guess what? You're going to be blessed and you're going to have prosperity and you're going to have peace and your enemies are going to run away from you and they're going to you know 10 of you will put to flight 100 of them and things like this okay if you go back to Deuteronomy 28 and there are other passages it talks about all the blessings that Israel will receive if they would just love obey and serve God that's all they got to do so it's ironic because if they want a king to fight their battles the answer is already found in the law just obey God and you won't have any battles to fight really Okay, so it's a secular desire here. It's misplaced priorities, and we do that as well all the time. We want to have our own personal creature comforts, our securities of different kinds, even at the expense of our relationship with God. People, I mean, I'm sure you could come up with a million different examples of this, but how many times has somebody compromised their faith in the workplace in order to have an advancement, a promotion, or a raise, or whatever? All right, they want that security above doing what's right. I'm sure there's a million examples of this stuff like this, okay? So we do it again, we do it as well. We have our misplaced priorities. And so here's a little quote for you as well uh, on, the, on that point. The real danger is that the people, by choosing a king and swearing allegiance to him, will be excluding God from the picture. From now on, the prophets will spend most of their energy convincing people that trusting in God does not mean one has to reject human resources, such as the monarchy, nor does the use of human resources involve turning one's back on God. In any event, the main danger posed by having a monarchy, and here I think is the point, uh, the big takeaway point from this quote, the main danger posed by having a monarchy will be a tendency to solve military, political, and social problems without reference to God or even in contravention of his law. I think that's really powerful. That's really worth thinking about. You know, we have all kinds of issues going on in the war today. As, as of this re recording, we got wars in, between Russia and Ukraine and Israel and Hamas and Palestine. And I don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow morning. 
But you've got all these issues that pop up in the world, military problems, political, social, etc. But if you do not have recourse to God and follow his law and the Ten Commandments that are inscribed on our hearts and revealed on Mount Sinai and the Beatitudes and the law of Christ, I'm telling you, the problem is not going to be resolved. It's going to become worse. And so what, they're, what Israel is dealing with then, we're, again, we're dealing with today, wanting to be like everybody else, not thinking about God, not thinking about a vocation to be God's children, and solving all the problems from a purely secular, worldly point of view. It's not, it's not going to make things better. It's going to make things worse.